the filibuster. First of all, what a great word. For those of you who got the newsletter and read through it this week, you saw that the filibuster as a word actually has its origin in the Dutch, and it actually means like freebooter. And in Spanish, it's actually filibustero, and it refers to piracy. So basically a filibuster, at least in the sort of 19th century connotation, was a pirate or a vagabond. And so that's kind of interesting when we even think about the word filibuster and where that comes from, and we'll tie that all together in a little bit. Just as a concept, what is the filibuster? Well, the filibuster is basically a tactic that senators use in the U.S. Senate to delay a bill or to extend the debate on a bill indefinitely until that debate comes to a conclusion. It's a tactic. It's a tactic that can be used to stall legislation. It's a tactic that can be used to halt legislation. It's a tactic that can be used to kill legislation. It's also a tactic that can be used to make people go back to the legislation they're proposing and make changes. And it happens in the Senate because the Senate is this, you know, temple of debate. Anyone can get on the Senate floor and talk and debate and talk and debate. And it's all perfectly constitutional because the Senate creates its own rules. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that you can't get up on the Senate floor and talk for 24 hours or 48 hours or 36 hours and debate a piece of legislation. Now, over time, the Senate has adjusted its rules to make those things harder to do or to give the Senate ways to stop that from happening. But the filibuster itself is constitutional. There's nothing in the Constitution that prevents it. There have been some scholars who have talked about um, the filibuster uh, not itself being unconstitutional, but the fact that a Congress might prevent itself or prevent future Congresses from making rules to rein in the filibuster, that might be unconstitutional. So in other words, you know, whenever a new Senate comes in, they can make their own rules. They're not bound by the rules of what happened before. That would be unconstitutional. But the filibuster itself is not unconstitutional. And as a tactic, it goes back and predates, you know, the United States by thousands of years. If you look on Wikipedia, if you look in popular news articles, you can see references to the filibuster in ancient Rome. Obviously, it wasn't called that at the time. But the notion of standing up and endlessly debating or talking for a long time in order to stall a piece of legislation, that has a very long history, and it also is not exclusive to the United States, as I mentioned earlier. If you look in news articles, if you look online, you can find varying contradictory statements about when the practice of the filibuster actually really started, but there are many scholars who feel that the practice of the filibuster is actually as old as the Senate itself. And one source that I looked at actually asserted that the first sort of recorded filibuster, although it wasn't called that at the time, but the first sort of extended delay, extended speech to delay legislation actually happened in 1790. And those were senators from Virginia and South Carolina who used that tactic as a way to stall or prevent the first Congress from meeting in Philadelphia. They actually wanted it to meet closer to the South and closer to their homes. So they tried this delaying tactic, this sort of endless speaking tactic to try to prevent that from happening. And there are other examples in the early Republic of this happening. Uh, you know, if you look online in the CNN article, I think that I sent out or the Hill article I sent out, it talks about 
instances in the early 1800s with Aaron Burr and other names that we'd recognize from our American history courses, you know, using the filibuster, or again, it wasn't called that at the time, but using this tactic of delaying or endless speaking or getting up and speaking for a long time as a way to delay something, you know, that's been used repeatedly for a lot of different reasons. This term of filibuster, as I mentioned, coming from the Dutch and the Spanish, becomes to be more identified as a practice and gets to have its name sort of in the decades leading up to the Civil War. And at that point, it very much does get connected to this question of, of slavery and the expansion of slavery or the, or the you know, ending or abolition of slavery in the United States. Because you have a, a Congress that is bitterly divided along sectional lines between North and South. And at every turn, there are these debates and these tussles over whether slavery is going to continue to exist only in the South or if it's going to be allowed to expand to the West or if it should exist at all. And in each successive compromise that fails to quell the issue, eventually, you know, leading to the Civil War in the 1860s, different senators use the filibuster as a way to sort of advance their side of the sectional crisis. And so there are some historians, for example, Keisha Blaine wrote a piece for MSNBC where she talked about how Calhoun and Clay and these other Southern senators who clearly had affinity for slavery wanted to retain uh, slavery as a condition of life in the South, used the filibuster for various purposes during the course of their maneuvering and negotiating during the 1840s and 1850s. You know, the word, as we said, it sort of comes from this filibuster pirating lineage. And it's sort of interesting because there actually were like mercenary sailors who were called filibusters and they actually went into various countries and like did expeditions and tried to invade. And there was actually an, a, an incident uh, where Southern mercenaries from the United States actually attacked Nicaragua, hoping to establish a place there that would be hospitable to the expansion of slavery. You know, as there was some difficulty expanding West, they looked South. And so this idea of the filibuster being connected to sort of race and slavery is certainly there. It's, it's there in the history. And if you look into it, it's, it's certainly palpable in the history. Uh, so I think that's something we need to acknowledge. And the word filibuster itself during this time actually takes on a pejorative, sort of a negative connotation because, again, it's associated with this sort of act of piracy. And, 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 um, and there's actually this connotation that when you're filibustering in the Senate, you're actually doing something against the United States, like you're, you're sort of filibustering against uh, the best interests of the Senate or against the United States. So it does have a pejorative aspect to it in the sort of mid 19th century in the 1840s, 1850s and leading up to the Civil War. But after the Civil War and in the 1880s and 1890s, there were tons of filibusters, lots of filibusters on both sides of the aisle. There were filibusters by progressives, a famous progressive who used the filibuster was uh, Bob LaFollette, who some of you may remember from your American history courses. There were also Republican and conservative filibusters, most famously against civil rights legislation, which again has gotten a lot of media attention. And so you know, there were a long string of Southern senators after the Civil War, during Reconstruction and during Jim Crow, who used filibuster as a way to stall or kill civil rights legislation. Obviously the most famous of that would be Strom Thurmond, which you've probably heard about or read about, you know, he filibustered for 24 hours straight to delay and kill civil rights legislation. But there are other uses of the filibuster as well. Like I said, Senator Bob LaFollette, who was a progressive in 1908, he filibustered against a currency bill. 
1917, there was actually a progressive filibuster uh, that successfully blocked Wilson's plan, what President Wilson's plan to arm merchant ships against German U-boats during World War I. It was actually that 1917 filibuster that led to some changes to the Senate, which allowed the filibuster to be killed by the Senate if there was sort of a two-thirds vote. And that's this term of cloture that some people have probably heard and read in the news. What's interesting is that there are also examples of people filibustering their own party. So we tend to think of the filibuster as this thing that uh, you know one party does to the other in order to stall legislation. But there's an interesting story from 1936 where a Democratic senator actually filibustered his own party, a Democratic Congress that was trying to pass a coal bill. And this senator, Senator Rush Holt, felt that the coal bill that was being passed was too friendly to coal miners and not friendly enough to coal workers, coal laborers. And so he actually successfully filibustered that bill by reading Aesop's fables on the floor of the U.S. Senate. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there, there's a lot of different ways that the filibuster has been used throughout American history. And even before it was called the filibuster, there were lots of instances of this tactic being used to delay debate, to you know, stifle legislation. It has sort of taken on the characteristics of the time period that it's encapsulated in. So during the period of civil rights, the filibuster was used very often to stall civil rights. But it was used you know, during World War I to stall actions related to World War I. In the 1930s, uh, with the New Deal, it was used to stall aspects of New Deal legislation. So it's a tactic that's been used a lot in a lot of different circumstances. It's been used by Republicans. It's been used by Democrats. It's been used by Republicans, uh, conservatives. It's been used by progressives. What's really interesting to me is the filibuster has increasingly become a tool that's used by senators and there have been some scholars who have talked about how that is connected to television and cable news. And the theory there is that as Congress has been broadcasted on C-SPAN and C-SPAN 2 and CNN and on cable news shows, filibustering on the U.S. Senate floor actually offers great media exposure to U.S. senators. So there are instances where senators clearly know that their filibuster is going to fail, that the legislation is going to pass, but they use the filibuster as a chance to get media exposure because basically it's like free air coverage, free airtime that they don't have to pay for. And it looks really good to your constituents back home because you're perceived as a fighter and someone who's standing up either to your own party or to you know the opposing party. So it makes for good television, it makes for good news stories, it makes for good news coverage, and it also can help you win re-election by giving you airtime that your challenger can't get. And there are some examples of this. For example, in 1998, Carol Mosley Braun used this very tactic. She was in a tough re-election campaign. She had only won about 53% of her district. And so she purposely undertook a filibuster with Democratic support that she basically used as a way to get free airtime and free exposure and to make her case directly to voters about why she should be reelected. So the filibuster is not always about legislation. It's not always about partisan bickering. Sometimes it can be a strategic tool for individual senators, whether it be to gain media exposure or to get reelected or what have you. The last thing I'll say is that what's really interesting in the past generation is that this issue of the filibuster hits the news cycle when Democrats control the White House. And 
it happened during the Clinton administration, it happened during the Obama administration, and it's happened again during the Biden administration. During the Clinton administration, there was great frustration uh, among the Clinton presidency and Democratic Congress that they couldn't get everything they wanted to get through uh, the Republican uh, Republicans in the Senate, and Republicans were using this filibuster to prevent them from getting their legislative agenda through. So it became, you know, they purposefully sort of started speaking out against it, planting stories in the news, speaking to reporters, getting activists on their side. And all of a sudden, in the mid-1990s, for those of us who are old enough to remember, there was a lot of discussion about the filibuster and should it be eliminated and was it constitutional? Then the Republicans took back the, the Congress, as some of you remember, and all of a sudden the filibuster conversation died down, right? Because Democrats didn't want the filibuster to go away when they weren't in power. That wouldn't help them get their agenda through. And in fact, Democrats used the filibuster to argue against a balanced budget amendment that Republicans had tried to put uh, through Congress in the late 1990s. Fast forward to the Obama administration. Again, the filibuster comes up as an issue because you have a Democrat Congress and a Democrat president who are trying to get legislation through and, and Republicans are obstructing it. And so again, the activists, the political operatives, the media, all of a sudden, there's more conversations about eliminating the filibuster. It's unconstitutional. Republicans are blocking everything. That conversation dies down, of course, during the Trump era, where it was advantageous to Democrats to have the ability to block legislation. And now it's perking up again during the Biden administration. So there's always political undertones to all this stuff. And there are reasons why things show up in the news cycle when they do. And I think part of what we try to do here in History Club is sort of decode some of that and bring some historical, leader, historical literacy and media literacy to the conversation. So that's some preamble, a lot of stuff to think about there, but I wanted to open up the conversation. So I want to think about a couple things as we start to bring people up. There's sort of the political arguments, right? A certain administration, whether it's a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, wants to get legislation through if they see the opposing party or even people in their own party as being obstructionist to that, they may want to change the rules of the Senate in order to get their stuff through. Okay, that's perfectly legitimate political, politically. Is that good for our democracy? Is, is it good for our democracy to have a minority in the Senate or an individual in the Senate who may object to a piece of legislation, either earnestly or selfishly, be able to you know, bring a filibuster to the floor and delay that legislation and make the people who wrote the legislation go back to the table and rethink it and rewrite it or try to get compromise from other sides of the aisle. Is that something that our democracy should have? Or do we think that, okay, there are elections and the people who win those elections should be able to just pass the legislation that they want to pass until it's time for the next elections. And if the people don't like that legislation that was passed, well, then in the next election, they can vote those people out and the whole process can start over again. So even though we understand that the filibuster is constitutional, do we think it's a good thing? Like, should it be allowed to continue or should it be reformed? Should it be eliminated altogether? You know, I think there's, there's good debates on both sides to have about that, both politically, like what's good for your party, and also for a democracy, what's best for the democracy to function should this sort of force compromise or this force ability to work across the aisle be seated in the Senate or should it just be based on who wins elections and who has a majority? So I think that's one question. 
I'm also very interested in the sort of comparative angle, and it's not something I know very well. So would love to hear from others about, you know, how things work in other countries. Um, there's, you know, in Europe and Canada, when you talk to people, they always say what happens in the United States eventually comes over to their countries in a two or three or five year lag. So as we have more filibusters in the United States, we have actually seen more filibusters in other parliaments and cabinets overseas. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Does it work differently overseas than it does here in the United States? I'd be interesting to have that conversation as well. And I think obviously the filibuster itself does have a history that's tied to race and racism and slavery and civil rights. And so I think that's part of the equation as well. And one of the things that Democrats are proposing now is not to necessarily eliminate the filibuster, but to make carve-outs or exemptions. So basically when there is civil rights or voting rights legislation that comes before the Senate, that can't be filibustered. You can bring a filibuster on anything, but there are certain things that are too important, too vital, too, you know, too related to issues of civil rights uh, to be filibustered. And so the filibuster should not be allowed on those things, but it should be allowed on other things. Is that a useful compromise? Is that a useful intervention? Or should, if there's going to be a filibuster, should there be a filibuster for everything? So <clears throat> those are some of the questions on my mind. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this. I think it's super fascinating. I don't have all the answers, uh, but I love posing the questions and I love digging into the history to sort of help us contextualize and think about the answers with a little bit more critical scrutiny. So let's start bringing some people up and uh, let's get some people involved in the conversation.